Support for this episode comes from Beerwolf. Beerwolf understands that never before have so many incredible flavors, styles, and brands been waiting to be discovered. That's why Beerwolf has built an online store to make it easier for you to find delicious beer in a way that's affordable, convenient, and fun. Beerwolf.com gives you access to hundreds of beers from local and international brewers at the touch of a button, delivered direct to your doorstep in just 24 hours. To find out more about Beerwolf, head on over to Beerwolf.com. That's wolf with a U, beerwlf.com, and discover your new favourite beer. Whether that's a New England IPA or a Belgian blonde, there's a world of beer to unlock. Cheers to that. Today, we're at a brewery which exploded onto the country beer scene on 29 March 2014, although the term exploded is pretty loosely used here. After months of hard work developing a small selection of beers that would appeal to Coventry's patrons thirsting for a unique mix of modern and classical styles and methods, they launched their beers at Coventry's number one bottle bar, Inspire, and it was a huge success. Originally brewing on a 60-liter kit, they described themselves as UK's first Pico Brewery. For those whose math is a bit weak, uh, Pico is 10 to the negative 12 or 0.0000000000, and you get the idea. At the time, they were the smallest commercial brewery in the UK. With a brewing capacity of around 120 bottles, demand quickly caught up with them and their supply was way too small. Fast forward to 20 June 2015, and they held another launch, this time in a brand new brewery and tap house at Fargo Village. With a new 1,000 liter brewing kit installed by Brewing Vessels, and as an entirely new brand designed from Stuart Easton, they finally became the brewery they always set out to be. And now, after almost two years, they've grown again. Transferring their bar and brewing kit into a space about five times larger than before, they're still serving the best beer at Fargo Village. In addition to the larger space, which could hold up to 300 people, they also now have the largest selection of beers in Coventry with 23 beers on tap and between 15 and 25 bottles of beers at any one time. With their brewing kit, they've expanded their fermenting capacity with additional 3,000 liters. This coupled with the additional brewing space has enabled them to increase their cast output and they've also started packaging in cans for the national and international market. Richie Bosworth, founder of Twisted Barrel, all brewers and tap house, along with brewer Carl Marshall. Welcome to the Brewers Journal podcast. That's right. Today we're in Coventry, gateway to Birmingham, and visiting, if not the lead brewery, the best brewery in the area. So, Pico Brewery, tell, tell me about this. I mean, uh, the Pico Brewery term came along really because uh, when Chris and I first came up with the idea of setting up a brewery, we knew we were doing something on a scale commercially that hadn't really been done in the UK before. Um, hence a lot of confusion with the relevant authorities in trying to set up a 60 litre brewery in a garage in a suburb of Coventry. Um, no one really understood what we were doing or why we were doing it. Um, the term Pico came from 
the fact that a usual kind of microbrewery in this country would be about six barrel, but a 60 litre compared to six barrel was about the same as whatever that end to the power minus 12 is. Um, so Chris, who's the more mathematically geeky of both of us, came up with that term to, uh, to describe it. Um, I think we came across it on the internet because I think there was a brewery in ne- Netherlands who were self-styled as a Pico brewery too. So we took upon the term in order to claim to be the first Pico brewery in the UK. How long did it take you guys to actually make enough profit so you could quit your day jobs and just work here? Uh, it was a case of actually trying to write, raise finance for the expansion um, rather than making profit through the business. We always knew that it would be a loss leader. Um, essentially, brewing on the 60-liter kit was, um, I guess, an extended market testing of the recipes we were creating, getting feedback from people, tweaking them, um, and just that kind of theme of continual improvement going on. So when we did ever expand, then we would have a better idea of what flavors, what recipes, what ingredients would work better for the general public. Um, so we we did it for about six months, working out the garage, working full time. Um, I wasn't overly happy in my job, but Chris was in a slightly different place in his life, starting a family, you know, so needed a bit more kind of job security. Um, so as soon as we were able to raise the finance to expand into Fargo Village, um, I quit my day job then. Uh, I was back in January 2014, so I'd been furiously saving um, for about two years up to this point, um, just to give us a bit of a buffer. Um, and luckily, since then, my uh, my lovely partner Jenna has has supported me. <laughs> How did you get funding for it? Uh, we tried traditional routes, uh, bank financing has always been our first point of call. But the unfortunate situation in the UK since the kind of banking crisis in 2011 is they just won't fund any small businesses basically anyone that is a kind of capital intensive business like ours where there's a lot of upfront cost of equipment um say you're an internet entrepreneur and you've got an idea and a platform that costs about a pound to do and then it's just in your head or online yes they'll happily support a business like that Um, but any kind of business that requires genuine investment um in kit or equipment we just found banks just weren't interested in supporting and that's still been the case now uh, five years on no bank has ever wanted to touch us because they're like well if it all goes belly up what are we going to do with some brewing kit we've got no interest in owning brewing kit we're a bank <laughs> they can make beer it's like well okay great uh, thanks you know um so fortunately well not fortunately it's actually horrible and terrible and so unfortunately one of our uh, closest friends um his father had passed on and um left him quite a large inheritance um, so he believed in us uh, liked our beer and wanted to support us through that first expansion just to get lifetime beer yeah basically yes. yeah. <laughs> Carl for you you just started a family kids nah, nah, no kids no nah. kids no nothing I've yeah. oh, got a wife <laughs> ah, okay we got a wife I mean was that a huge step though or a huge risk you think um, I, I was currently well before I was brewing, I was working in the NHS as a stop smoking advisor. A bit of a change of job. Um, and I wasn't really kind of feeling the role anymore. Um, and I had this passion for home brewing. Um, and I'd recently gone on a brew lab course up in Sunderland as well. So I was um, really kind of looking to find a way out of the NHS in a way. Um, applied for quite a few brewing jobs. Never heard anything back from anyone um, until uh, I met up with someone in Coventry um, who wanted to start up a brewery. 
help them start it up. And then uh, kind of been speaking to Richie for a few years, well, a year or so before that, um, nicking a couple of ingredients off him while he was brewing that Twisted Barrel for my home brew kit. Um, and then uh, one day just kind of got together and kind of made a bit of sense for me to move on to it. How was the course in Sunderland? Do you, do you think you could have hit the, the ground running? Um, yes and no. They don't teach you some stuff up there. I think it's more practical um, until you actually physically kind of open a brewery and uh, make beer um, as a product and sell it. Uh, you kind of learn a lot behind it you can always learn how to make beer but you can never necessarily know how to run a business selling yeah. beer I, I think that's yeah. always a challenge with yeah. everything is as a as a fish farm he told me once in uh i think in brazil he said anybody could grow shrimp but he said not everybody could sell shrimp and he said that's that's the challenge you could make the best beer in the world um uh, but if you don't market it right it's going to be very very hard to sell to people and let's face it, we've all seen the opposite. We've seen some of the worst beer in the world that does extremely well yeah. with, a, with good marketing. So right now, you've, you've left the days of Pico behind you. Um, you actually got quite a nice space here. Is this it for a while as far as expansion? is? Yeah, we're at the point, um, having your kind of second big expansion in three years, obviously always going to create a strain on the business, and you've got that chance to overcome some of the mistakes that you make first time around. Um, the main mistake we made the first time around, we moved into a 1500 square foot unit, but very soon realized that is not enough space for a brewery. Um, and that's one of the main problems you have when you're coming from a home brewing background with no commercial experience is not quite understanding um, the amount of space that running a brewery takes up. Um, so when we moved into here, this is a 6,000 square foot unit. We did it with the intention of this being a home. You know, we signed a 10 year lease. Uh, we've got the space within the brewing area to triple our current fermentation capacity. Um, with just some minor electrical upgrades and probably the addition of a CLT, a cold liquor tank, then that would be easily attainable for us. Um, so yeah, this was a, a future proofing move um, that we could stay here for likely the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years um, until Twisted Barrel or Fargo Village is no more, really. Um, so we have no plans to move beyond here. We're not a, we're not a global all-conquering kind of megalomaniacal kind of bunch of people. Um, we want to get to a point where we're a stable business with positive cash flow that everyone involved in getting the business to this point in time can then be drawn back into the fold and can work here full-time because when we all get together and get our minds together, that's when we produce the best things. Um, so we can't wait to get to that point. And it's probably only about a year away now. You know, I've heard everybody, they always say that uh, their initial space was too small. But, you know, if you're starting out, how do you know what's too small and how do you know you're actually going to grow? Yeah, you don't. I mean, one of the, actually, the main problem we had in terms of space was the tap house being so successful from day one. Um, we had like a grand opening day at Fargo Village, the 20th of June, 2015 or 14, whatever, I can't remember now, <laughs> 2015, I think. Um, and it was just ridiculously busy and it carried on that way throughout the whole summer um, to the point where we hadn't really opened a brewery, we'd opened a bar with a brewery in the back, you know, it, it wasn't really ever meant to be like that. We thought you'd probably have 10, 15, 20 beer nerds in on a weekend doing a tasting tray of one of our six beers on tap. But 
there was such a kind of dearth of good beer in Coventry that it just became the go-to place for craft beer in Coventry. Um, this was back before um, Beer Gonzo opened its tap room up. And there's really, there's, Coventry is very traditional, isn't it, in yeah. terms of the stranglehold of the big Midlands brewers on the pubs in Coventry. So there's no real places to sell beer to in Coventry, for example. I mean, we sell to what, we've got two or three customers in Coventry, that's Pretty it. Um, so it's not really known for beer, but there's always been that first for good beer in Coventry because there has always been Beer Gonzo selling great beer to take home or um, Inspire that was selling kind of, um, not draft beer, but bottled Belgian and UK beer. Um, so there re really wasn't a good place to drink draft craft. We were talking before we started this recording about tap rooms and, uh, and just the difference between a traditional pub and a tap room. And um, I was mentioning that folks like me, we actually, we feel extremely comfortable going to a tap room. Folks like me, we don't always feel that comfortable going into a pub. It always seems to me that a pub is, um, you go in there and, you know, people have been there so long that their, you know, their butts have been concreted to their seats and that. And you always feel a bit like you're the stranger. Tap rooms, I might be wrong, but they always feel pretty welcoming. I mean, do you find that? Um, I do, yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit of a problem, really. My partner, Jen, she used to work in a lot of traditional pubs. And, yeah, the, the attitude of people is very different. Um, it's normally a kind of very different age bracket with very different political, social outlook on life, shall I say. Um, we're lucky that the Tap House is a very diverse place. Um, Fargo Village itself is a very diverse place. I mean, we've got 45,000 students living around us here, but it's not essentially a student place. It is a nice place for families to go to. Uh, we're a regular haunt for many hundreds of people in the area. Students are maybe 5-10% of our clientele. Um, there's a lot of international students in Coventry as well, and they love it because for the European students, it reminds them of being back in the kind of, you know, the European style beer cafes that they have over there. Um, for the students from Asia, it's just, again, like you said, just a little bit more welcoming than that traditional British boozer. Um, so, yeah, it's great to have a really diverse audience, and um, that's probably the thing I'm most proud about of our tap house. Um, I wouldn't say personally from my own experience of tap houses, it's like that in every tap house in the UK. Um, I do find most of them predominantly white dudes with beards, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I just love the fact that ours isn't like that. Um, but I think a lot of that could possibly be down to location. You know, a city centre location, part of an independent, thriving, artistic village. You're going to get a wider clientele come through your door. With your tap room, do you, uh, is that where your main draw of profits is right now? Uh, definitely, yeah. I mean, it was what kept us going the first year because we were selling about 80% of our beer through the tap room. Um, we wanted to redress that and get our name out to a wider audience. Um, so we kind of about six months in of opening at Fargo, we had to kind of redress the balance a little bit. That's when we um, brought Carl on board um, so that that would free up some of my capacity in order to raise our profile. Um, plus, Kyle had good links into the beer community anyway in terms of his social media presence, so he could shout a bit more about us on that side of things. And that evened out over time in our old unit to being more like 50-50 in terms of our sales, um, about half going for our tap house and half further afield. Um, when we moved into the larger space, the larger tap house, we thought that might go down to about 25% in our tap house and 75% externally. 
but it hasn't. It's stayed at 50-50, so our tap room take-ins just automatically jumped up 80% as soon as we moved into a bigger space because rather than seating 40 people with one toilet we're now seating for 160 with eight toilets and, you got eight toilets sir yeah and like <laughs> 24 <laughs> lines of beer versus well by the end in our old unit we were up to 14 yeah, lines yeah. weren't we because we had various little kind of MacGyvered bits of kit everywhere dispensing beer as the man grew um, so we jumped from 14 to 24 lines much more seating more toilets and I think it was kind of like releasing the handbrake on the tap room a bit because we were always constrained by space and time. Um, we could only really open two days a week in our old space. Here we're open five days a week. So um, for me, the tap house is the main driver of our business um, in terms of being able to survive for a start. I genuinely do not know how any brewery survives without a tap room um, purely because of the instant cash flow it provides um, and gaining that extra margin as well. Um, and maybe that just was a good choice of us back in the day to to choose a city centre location. Um, when we were kind of when we first started the Pico Brewery, we couldn't think of anywhere in Coventry that could ever have a tap room in it because it was always going to be an industrial estate somewhere on the outskirts of Coventry, and we just didn't really want that model. Um, so when we heard about Fargo Village and came to check it out, that was when the idea of a tap house first came into our minds, um, and we were just lucky that the uh, person who kind of set up and built Fargo Village that invested in it um, had actually been down to Crate Brewery in London the weekend before we walked through the door and had a fantastic day eating pizza and drinking beer by the Thames and had come back and said to the people that run Fargo Village, get me a brewery and tap room. That was the Monday morning and me and Chris walked in on the Friday morning saying, we want to set up a brewery and tap room in Fargo Village. And there you go. <laughs> um, so it was just kind of serendipitous timing. Um, and as soon as we saw the space, we could see the potential for it. How many people could actually be in the tap room at one time? Uh, the most we've had in our current tap room is 250 we had on New Year's Eve. Uh, what year are we now? 2019? Yeah. New Year's Eve 2017 was probably our biggest night. Um, we've had more than that at beer festivals and things, but um, that's a more transient crowd. They're in and out. They're sitting in the village and things like that. New Year's Eve, it's cold, so everyone's inside. Uh, we had to open up all the brewing area, put extra seating and extra lighting in. Um, what did we do that year? We had bands on and stuff, yeah, didn't we? So New Year's Eve is always a pretty big night. Um, all the beer festivals that we run, but the beer festivals are generally in the warmer months. So even though you've got probably three, 350 people around, a hundred of those are probably sat in the village because the, the whole village is licensed. You can go and sit anywhere in Fargo Village and drink our beer, um, which opens up the tap room to being, you know, a huge one acre site, basically, at the end of the day. You know, you were just saying about how every brewery should have a tap room. I've seen in San Diego, um, you know, a couple of small breweries, and that's how they have the tap room. They don't sell their beer anywhere else. Um, no cans, no bottles. It's the tap room. And one... Geez, if they could fit 20 people in there, well, probably 30 at best, but I mean, most of those 30 would be standing. Um, and even that, I think, would have been a crunch. And yet they've done this one I'm thinking of, uh, it's called Pure. They've actually done extremely well. They're now expanding out, and I think they're actually going to go the bottle and can route. But um, it just seemed like the tap room was an extremely good move for them. Do you think that's something that some of the breweries, especially the small guys starting out, are missing out on? Um, I, I think, I mean, what's it, Carla? I think you definitely have to have a tap room now if you're starting out because of the level of competition that's yeah, out there, really. definitely. Um, it, it's very hard to get your beer out to bottle shops 
and bars now um, because there's so much competition without giving out samples or actually knowing anyone in the bar. So it's a lot of work for probably a little bit of a payoff. So whether or not you can do that, or if you're one-man band, one-person band, you're not going to have the time to do that either. So starting up a tap room or just having a couple of taps in the brewery is going to be super beneficial for you to get your beer out there for people to talk about you. Um, as a starting point, they're going to go to the bars and the pubs that probably will have your beer eventually, and they'll be talking about you. I think the kind of liberal licensing laws in this country really help as well. Um, it's not difficult to set up a licensed premises in this country, whereas in a lot of other countries it is. Um, so that plays into your hands really when you're starting up a brewery to to not have a tap. I, I just couldn't understand why you would open a brewery without a tap room now. I mean, obviously, if funds didn't allow it or something like that, but it's just an essential part of any business that wants to be in it for the long term, I think. How important is food at your tap room? Um, depends really like we we do food in the way that kind of keeps people in the seat for a couple more hours so just snacks and things like that it can be an integral part of what you do when you think of places like war pigs and things like yeah, that can't you yeah. but I, I you almost maybe run that risk of the food overshadowing the drink as well, well that's it i think yeah you probably need to set up with that in mind um if you're going to do like meals rather than snacks and burgers and stuff like that. I think you need to really think about how you're going to position the beer around that more rather than um, have food for anyone with a beer. Like, first off, it's a tap room, not, not a restaurant, really. So, I think there's that there. issue as well of my passion is beer and making beer and I want to be able to make the best beer I possibly can. If part of my business was going to be dedicated to making really great high quality food as well i know that would detract from my true passion i'm not saying i don't like food i love food but to be honest like my favorite food is junk food burgers fries stuff like that so that's i'll gladly eat that for every meal till the end of time which probably won't be that far away if i keep eating burgers and fries um so for me i guess when you're in a small business and don't have the capacity to focus on something and do it to the best of your ability don't do it focus on what you're good at um, so that's the main reason we've never gone all in on food is that it would detract from the little resources we have it's why it's just you know fried things basically that we sell here simple little bar snacks um, it's, not, it's something that we would love to do one day but we're not there yet as a business we're not ready we don't have the capacity to give it our true kind of stamp of quality if, if you get my meaning having fried food especially um I mean, this close to where you're brewing, do you think it can affect flavor at all? Um, not noticed any impact to myself, um, no, but then... But then you enjoy yeah. fries. Yeah. So if you, <laughs> so you had a fry-flavored beer, yeah. boy, this beer is good today. I don't know what the hell we did to it, but... Well, the yeah. kitchen's quite isolated as well, mm. isn't it? So yeah. it's quite far away from the brewing area. Mm. Now, I would describe your beers that you do as probably more modern than mm. traditional um, can you guys give me the definition of what do you think the difference is between modern and traditional? Um, for me, modern beer is about a focus on flavor and quality, not essentially about the price point or you know the, the bottom line. Um, the analogy I've always liked is the fact that a, a modern brewer will brew the beer, they'll package the beer, they'll wait patiently for it to be ready to release, and then they'll think, oh, 
oh, what did it cost? Oh, I better work out a sales price. Oh, crap, you know, work it out and add a margin on, and that's the sales price. Whereas for me, more traditional beer is generally, can you produce a beer to this price point that I need to get in X amount of pubs, and this is the marketing campaign for it already written. Um, it's a back-to-front approach to me. It should be about creating a quality beer that is exactly what you wanted it to be. And then the price is whatever the price dictates, you know, the ingredients dictate the price. So it's a little bit of that. Um, it's a little bit of the fact that now there are so many more ava- um, better quality and more flavorful ingredients available to the brewer. Um, that wasn't the case back in the Victorian era or, you know, <laughs> getting towards right up until the 60s, 70s. I mean, it wasn't really until the kind of U.S. craft explosion that more flavorful hops, for example, started to be grown and therefore be available and then... For that popularity of that style of beer to take off for the hops then to become in demand further around the world so um i think we've got a lot to thank from the us for their focus on hops really in the 80s and 90s and how that's kind of spread around the world yeah um for me i agree with some of that <laughs> but also at the same time i feel that the new age of kind of beer is it's also taking its roots from traditional beer as well so the lines are a li- can be a little bit blurred between the two um, my personal opinion I feel that the main difference is quality like Richie was saying as well and the fact that a lot of the newer breweries are more adventurous with the malts hops yeast more willing to try different things um, and more to do with collaborations as well a lot of the traditional breweries I hate saying traditional breweries but the older style breweries um, are very much inwards very focused on their products and what they do whereas the newer age of breweries seem to want to collaborate a lot more try and gain experience try and push the boundaries of beer a little bit more there's definitely more of a desire to learn isn't there i think yeah new techniques new ingredients new processes new everything don't rest on your laurels and just accept your beer is good aim higher aim for greatness aim for creating the most tasty beer you ever can like imagine drinking that's what you're kind of going for really so how do you come up with the new beer i mean i noticed with your seasonals which were the ones that really jumped out at me because um um i'm not going to say it's a girly drink because i don't want to you know don't want to go down that road but i do prefer american sours i like fruity raspberry beer when i saw that one you know 3.4 raspberry sour i said oh my god i hope you guys have that here (laughs) but you also have a rye which um you know, people I talk to in the UK, some people, they they always think it's a little bit too spicy for them. They, they're not real keen on rye. But how do you come up with your with your beers? You, do you sit around and think, God, this is the flavor we want to go after. This is how we're going to do it. Um, I think we've many like, different influences, <laughs> yeah. really, isn't it? Like, we, we all like different styles of beer. We don't tend to stick to one particular style when we drink. So a lot of the time, if I've drank a beer somewhere or um, I feel an urge to drink a beer I'm like okay how did they make that um, it'll be really really cool to see if I can do produce something a little bit similar to that and then Richie seems to come up with very good recipes <laughs> kind of molding that and putting our little twist on each individual one at the moment we're brewing a mild it's been pretty much in the core range hasn't it since it's day one yeah yeah um, and that has that, the twisted barrel twist to it, really, as well. Um, it's kind of bring it into the newer audience. I think, in particular, with um, sours, my own personal 
desire to make sours. Um, we can't really do complex sours because we haven't got the right infrastructure in place. We don't have the right bugs or the right barrels or the right space. Um, this space, while it's future-proof in terms of producing clean beers, if we were ever to get onto the dirty side of things, we would have to take out a separate facility, do it properly, not to um, place the main brewery under the risk of infection. Um, so we knew that we couldn't really do dirty sours from day one, proper wild sours. So kettle sours was the way to go. Um, but um, I'm vegan, and, and so I kind of like research a lot of the processes and ingredients that go into making beers. And I became aware that a lot of the ingredients that were being used to make cow sours weren't vegan. Um, but I enjoyed them, you know, and I want to drink them. So it was a case of, right, how can I make a vegan sour beer? Um, and that was really how Detroit Sour City came out, wasn't it? There were new products coming to market from Lalamond um, that were lactic acid grown on sugar beet, for example. Um, and they were repurposing old kind of wine yeasts as souring bacteria for beers so we started experimenting with those and getting great results um that first batch of detroit sour oh god it's so nice <laughs> uh, it's just basically a mosaic dry hopped kettle sour a blinnerweiser dry hop blinnerweiser um and it started from there really didn't it it was yeah. kind of um we liked what we'd created incredibly dry refreshing drinkable kind of beers you know that could be soured and in the glass and drinking it within about three to four weeks so um, it just really took off from there and then we started flavoring them with different things I think that's reached a bit of a culmination in the ghost town at the moment hasn't yeah, it that's just yeah. ridiculous 100 kilos of fruit purees in there and it's just like drinking pot basically <laughs> um, but that kind <laughs> of sounds like my beer right <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think you'd like it yeah um, so I think that's where the sours came from but then in terms of hazy pails and things like that I, I didn't want to even try and create one until I'd been to New York and tried the stuff that Over Half was producing, for example, because I knew that what was being produced in the UK didn't really correspond to what I was reading about the styles in America. Um, the bitterness levels seemed to be more subdued here. Um, they just seemed a lot sweeter than what I was reading about online. So we didn't really even start bothering to make hazy pears until at least one of us had been to America and tried some at Source and got an idea of, oh, this is what they're supposed to be like. Um, so it's that kind of keeping up to date with things, trying to get out there and check what they're actually like, these beers, not what other brewers are interpreting them to be and releasing them under the same name. So you've got an idea of what the origin of the beer style was. Um, I mean, for example, there's the beer style of Brew IPA that mm. kind of broke out last year. Yeah. We made every effort we could to try loads of them. Didn't actually didn't like any of them, <laughs> so we don't brew any. It's like, what's the point did, of brewing it? Yeah, I know? did notice that, that you, uh, yeah, you just don't have them. Yeah. When, when you're coming up with the beer, I mean, you look out the window and you think, okay, this is what this crowd wants, or do you think, well, this is what we want, and hopefully the crowd out there is going to like it? I like to think that I'm the crowd. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the crowd of one. Yeah, no, I, I've got a lot of friends that don't drink beer to kind of just... They drink beer just to enjoy beer. So a lot of my friends will tell me if they don't like one of our beers or they don't like a particular style of beer. So it's, it, it's quite refreshing, really, to be that other side of it. Yeah, there's a, there's a blend of both um, in, in answer to the question. There is a need to keep producing beers that the majority of the craft beer world want to drink. Um, so the focus on hoppy pails, obviously, is always going to be there. Um, 
But there's a great desire within Twisted Barrel that will always be part of us is to not limit ourselves and not just to produce a single type of beer. Um, we like to try our hand at a, a wide variety of beers. At the moment, um, because of like we've expanded twice in three years, there is a financial emphasis on making hoppy pails at the moment and that for being probably about 70% of what we do. Um, but that over 30%, I mean, in a week, in a week we'll brew an oatmeal stout, a mild, a gosa, barley a porter, <laughs> a barley wine. You know, there's no reason to stop experimenting, mm. stop learning new things. And for me, you're going to lose your creativity and your ability to kind of take on new techniques or new processes if you just keep making the same style of beer all the time. Um, and that's not why I wanted to set up a brewery or get into beer just to make one style of beer all the time. That, for me, has no interest whatsoever. Um, it's just, it's limiting yourself. You guys are basically, you're a two-man band here. I'm going to take a wild guess. Your work week has got to be 72 hours at least? Yeah, it's a double full-time. <laughs> Yours pretty much double mine, so. <laughs> yeah. I guess Carl's fortunate that he's yeah. <laughs> salaried. And <laughs> but, I mean, even that, like, because obviously you get all your overtime paid, you're still yeah. probably doing, what, 45 hours a week, every yeah. week, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the early days, it was um, probably 80, 90 hours most weeks. Um, then we brought Carl on board to help out, and I guess my working week went down to an average of 60, 70 hours a week. Um, but it's maintained at that for the last three or four years. Um, it does place an awful strain on, on your relationship. My partner, Jen, um, she like we, we we struggled with it early doors because we weren't really seeing each other that much. Um, I'm always tired, you know, and nowadays I'm generally falling asleep at about half nine because I'm just exhausted. Um, but I think the response that we took as a as a partnership, Jen and I, was for Jen to get more involved in the business. Um, so then the resentment wouldn't be there because she'd feel ownership of the business too. I mean, Jen was always a director of the business, um, but in the early days. She wasn't really doing that much with helping out. So we're like, right, you take over the tap house, staff management, um, you know, events management, all that kind of thing. So you're more involved in the business. Um, and that, I think, helped because, um, well, didn't help Jenny that she has to work about an extra 20 hours a week on top of her day job. Um, but it helped in terms of not feeling that resentment towards the business. Um, it's still tough. It's still tough because you don't really get any holidays. Um, going away for a weekend to celebrate my, my 40th birthday next week, um, but that'll be my first probably day off since Christmas, I think. Um, and the stresses and strain. Um, I managed to deal with it mentally purely because, um, I don't know, I'm one of those weird people that just can just switch off, you know. I'm not plagued with kind of kind of mental issues or anything like that I've got a lot of friends that suffer from depression things like that and I've never fortunately touched would ever had any issues like that I recognize it and I understand it in people around me but I'm fortunate to have never struggled with anything like that physically my body <laughs> is getting it's basically ground into dust I think over time uh, my shoulder's been iffy for the last three weeks my knee's starting to hurt again um, my knee like flares up and becomes almost I can barely walk for like a few weeks until I just force myself to sit down and not do anything for a day and put my put my leg up um you know so those kind of musculoskeletal problems they're they're tough to deal with aren't they mm. especially when you're digging out the mashton every day and things yeah. like that um for, for me personally um because i 
I do get that break at the weekend. Um, it is a, a big refreshment for me for when I do come back in the morning on Monday. Um, it, I'm not going to lie, I'm, I'm, I'm very well supported. It, so it hasn't really affected me too much working long hours. I would say it's more affected me really the feedback and how open people are on social media with uh, the beer that you make. That that would probably affect me a lot more than working a lot more hours. When they tell you that yeah, it's terrible at like nine o'clock on a Sunday, Sunday morning, morning and you've just opened your eyes and it's like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, he just told you, man, any, anybody that creates anything, yeah. yeah, you go through the same thing. Yeah. Hand on heart. I mean, I really want an honest answer here. Would you have done it any differently? And do you think at times, you know what? I really wish maybe I'd taken a safer job. Um, personally, I mean, I spent um, 17 years as, as an accountant before doing this. Um, We're so all making would, faces yeah. at that. <laughs> I, I, I would gladly take a punishing job over sitting in front of an Excel spreadsheet for eight hours a day for the rest of my life. Um, so I don't, there's no regrets in terms of that. Um, I think like, I wish we'd have been able to raise more money, have a bigger space, a bigger team, things like that. But we, we just didn't have that luxury, you know, we're not from money. Um, we never really wanted to do the crowdfunding route or anything like that because it didn't really speak to us individually. So I guess my only regret is being poor <laughs> and not having had the money to do things in what is a safer way for your mental and physical health. I've had plenty of jobs <laughs> in the past. I've been a welder, graphic designer, um, healthy lifestyle um, kind of trainer for the NHS, stop smoking advisor for the NHS. Um, brewing is pretty much the only job that I've actually got a passion in um, and actually really really enjoy I, I don't regret coming to work here um, so no I, I don't wish I was doing anything else at all I really enjoy brewing I, I really enjoy the team here I really enjoy being around beer I really like going out to social events um, talking about our beer I love going to beer festivals speaking to new people about like new beer um, it's it's a good scene to be part of. It's very friendly as well. Yeah, I think the main kind of mental pressures are generally anyone, those of anyone that runs a small business, you know, mm. the constant money stress. Um, and that wanting to be able to provide your workforce with everything they need to do their job safely, securely, and remunerate them well, give them additional training, that kind of thing. That's where my future kind of development of the business is geared towards is having a really happy, healthy, well-educated, well-trained workforce in a very safe environment, producing a great quality product, because that's the thing that stresses me out, you know, like, we're, we're a living wage employer and not that stupid government living wage, the actual living wage, and always have been. Um, so we don't underpay our staff, but I still feel like I'm underpaying my staff for the amount of work they do, you know. And I still wish that there were more training opportunities we could afford for them to go away and learn more. Um, and then there's just that general day-to-day -day stress of, is there enough money in the bank account for the bills that everyone that runs a small business is going to have? Um, so I think they're the biggest tolls um, and where most of my grey hairs come from. 
You know, it still must be a great feeling though when you uh, when you walk in the door in the morning and you just you smell the brewery and you just think, ah, you know, I could be in front of a spreadsheet right now. <laughs> I still have to do this spreadsheet. So I see any problem? They're just beer duty spreadsheets. <laughs> Richie and Carl of Twisted Twisted Barrel, thank you so much for letting uh, Brewers Journal podcast come in and talk to you today. Um, thank you, my brewing compadres for listening in. For other great podcasts, including all the brewers, visit www.rebymedia.com. For the next series of the Brewers Lectures, please visit the Brewers Journal website. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.